0: Welcome to another episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini, and this episode is all about special education. Now, we know our kids have special needs. We know our kids need help in school. And for the most part, we get that help from special education teachers. But what exactly is special education? How do these teachers get trained in special education? And how are decisions made about the methods and protocols of special education? Our guest for this episode has all those answers and a lot more information. Paula Lancaster is a professor of special education and the chair of the special education foundations and technology department at Grand Valley State University in West Michigan. In other words, she's the teacher who teaches the teachers that become special education teachers. Yeah, I know. We talked about a wide range of issues, including the changes in special education approaches from years ago to current methods, some of the major misconceptions that people have about special education, the differences in special education, the way it's done between public schools, charter schools, and private schools, educational budget problems and how they can affect special education programs, and a lot of other issues. A quick note for you, this is the longest podcast episode I've recorded so far, but Paula has a lot of really important and interesting information here, so be ready to spend a little extra time with this one. However, to start things off, I asked Paula why she decided to go into special education. And like so many of the people who work with our kids, her reasons were personal.
1: I started in part thinking about it because when I was younger, we had, um, I mean, I've had members of my family who've had disabilities, and so, which I, I think is the way a lot of people decide to go into this. And I had the good fortune to do some early work with individuals with disabilities in, um, through Easter SEALs. I worked as a volunteer at a, at a local Easter SEALs um, organization office. And then, um, and like I said, family members. And I initially thought that I wanted to be a physical therapist. So I even started majoring in physical therapy. But then I, I was advised. Um By my academic advisor that most of the jobs in physical therapy were in geriatrics and um, and and that was okay, but it, I really wanted to work with children and so um, as I talked with my advisor, she suggested special education, which was you know also an option that has been in my mind so um, so that's I I changed my major after taking one course on learning disabilities. I thought, yep, this is it. This is what I want to do. So So that was that was kind of how I got started.
0: Oh, uh, so you kind of just found your path through college?
1: Right. Yeah, through college. But I think a lot of my experiences when I was younger, you know, really played into that. Um, I, I can vividly remember I was in seventh grade when I first realized that other people, um, might be uncomfortable around individuals with disabilities. It had just never occurred to me because I was, oh, know, we had family members, so I didn't. It never even occurred to me that that was something that was, you know, somehow like really different for some people.
0: Right, I mean, and of course, back then they were still segregating uh,
1: often, yeah, people right, with disabilities
0: right. from the rest of the classes. And they're there have been, and going into that, of course, there's a lot of remarkable changes in the way special needs children are taught in schools. Like I said, you know, we used to have segregated classrooms or even sent to different schools altogether. But the emphasis now is on adapting the classroom structure to suit the needs of a child. So how has that impacted the way the general education teachers work with kids?
1: You know, I think the, the one of the big things is that they, they certainly need to be more flexible in their instruction. Mm-hmm. You know, with we used to be able to, and general education teachers used to kind of be able to do this. Is, this is how I teach, and so children need to adapt to my style of teaching. Um, but that's, you know, not really an option too much anymore. Um, and also, you know, from uh, being a special educator, from our perspective, we really push the idea of universal design for learning. So at the at the very planning stage of instruction or curriculum. We want, we're hoping that general education teachers are considering the needs of a range of students um, and, you know, anticipating that from the beginning and that they also are creating or considering multiple pathways toward reaching whatever their instructional goals are. Right. So, for example, you know, if we want a student to really understand a um, the, the, the theme of a short story or the the, or a piece of historical fiction, you know. There are, there are multiple ways to get students to to that, to appreciating and understanding themes and text beyond just reading the text word for word. You know, there are other ways to get there. So, so I think that's, that's probably um, the biggest change for general educators is that they have to consider various, various possibilities and, and as a result, you know, have a bigger repertoire of teaching approaches. That they can
0: draw from right so they definitely general education teachers really now need to understand more of the techniques of special education yeah
1: I, yes absolutely
0: and individualized uh, programs what um, what do you think is the single biggest misconception that people have about special education and special education teachers
1: you know it's hard to think of to think of just one um, I think though uh, one thing that I, I find very problematic is the idea that um, the instruction or the, the content should be in some way watered down. So I think about watered down a lot. that we should be um, making things easier and that's what that, that's what special education is all about. Special education is about making things easier. Yeah,
0: or simplifying in other words.
1: right, right. Um, I don't think that's the case at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's more um, finding that that sweet spot, that balance of um, of making content or knowledge accessible, but also providing just the right amount of, you know, kind of push and pressure to get kids to to learn it. Um, so, I, I, you know, I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't like the idea that we would water down, all, all kids should get the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about teachers, and I can remember this from my own experience, and, and I still hear it a lot, even though I now teach at the university level, um, People always say when they learn that you're a special educator, they'll say, "Oh, you must be so patient."
2: Mm.
1: And um, and I I think that's a misconception because, on the contrary, I think we are very impatient (laughs) by and large. Um, I think we get we tend to be impatient with people who don't understand the needs of different kids. Right. Um, I think at times we're probably impatient with students too because only because we realize that. Most of the students I I teach are a little bit behind their peers, Mm -hmm. and so too much patience perhaps would lead them to being even further behind. So, you know, on the contrary, I'm going to keep pushing as hard as I can so that, you know, so that they can make progress, close the
0: gap. Right. And I've said this in other places before, and I'll mention it again. My wife, Sarah, has a great saying, which is that, you know, a lot of these kids are a lot smarter than we think they are. They're just unfortunately trapped in bodies that don't often cooperate. Right. And they're not able to communicate the way they want to.
1: Yes. And so our our sitting back and, um, you know, not trying to draw that out doesn't necessarily do kids a whole lot of favors. Right. You know, In the end. Yeah. Yeah, I also, and I don't know, this This may come up later, though, in, in um, one of your questions or, or our conversation, but um, I get very frustrated when I hear people talk about how expensive special education is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's another misconception, you know, that it's expensive. Right. Um, certainly, it, it might cost more to educate some students with disabilities, but, you know, one question I'd have is, what else would you have us do? Right. Um, And I think so much of what we've learned in in our work in special education has added value to general education instruction.
0: Yeah, we might as well go right into that because there's a lot of debate going on here in Michigan and across the nation about cutting budgets for public education, you know, and there's politicians and other people who say that only general education budgets will be cut. There won't be cuts in special education, but the truth is cuts in the general education education budget can have a huge impact on the special education, like loss of para or teacher assistants and social workers and so on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, what should parents know about public education budgets and how some of these cuts could impact their school's uh, special education programs?
1: I I do think that you're right. That is a um, very common misconception. Um, So uh, parents need to understand that um, the federal law, IDEA, really only partially funds special education. So the, those federal funds, um, you know, they, they come down to the states. But to begin with, IDEA has never been fully funded. Hmm. When it initially came to be, and, and as it's been reauthorized, the, the, um, the creators of that legislation, the people who, who built that and put it together, hmm. uh, recommended that the government should fund about 40% of the additional cost of educating students with disabilities. That's all. That, right, right. Jeez. So that's, that's the kind of, that's the high um, amount. 40% should come from the feds. But but what people don't understand is that it has never been funded at that level. Mm-hmm. It's only ever been funded at between, somewhere between like 12 and 18%. There may have been some years when it got into the twenties.
0: Right, so they're getting basically about half of what they originally planned for.
1: Right, right. So, so if you think about half of 40%, you know, mm-hmm. now you're really looking at a pretty, what, what feels like a pretty small slice coming from the federal government, which means the state makes up the rest. Right. And so if the state decides to cut education, of course, we're going to feel that in special
0: education. Right. And one of the problems that I hear from a lot of uh, people and politicians, in fact, is that, well, the federal government pays for the whole thing. And it sounds like they really don't.
1: They don't. No, they do not. That is definitely a miscon- misconception.
0: Right, and then they think they can cut uh, the budget as much as they want because we got all the money coming in from the Fed. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's not correct, right? Right. Well, I kind of jumped yeah. around there on the questioning, but oh, we, that's okay. it was no, important that's to go okay. into but that.
1: It is important because um, that's where, you know, when, when people realize that, I mean, that's where we really we need the voices of parents and families and advocacy groups. To, to help others understand that, that we're, not, we're not guaranteed those
0: funds. Well, let's talk about charter schools and private schools because they're getting a lot of attention with politicians and other people claiming that these institutions can be a better option over public schools. Now, are the laws and regulations for special education standards the same for a charter and private school, or are they uh, different uh, as far as, uh, you know, versus what uh, the kids would get at a public school education?
1: In Michigan... The standards are technically the same for charter schools as they are for traditional public schools.
0: Mm.
1: We treat we treat charter schools in much the same way that we treat publics, but there are some differences. So they, for example, a charter school has some freedom to set a specific mission mm-hmm. um, for the charter, whereas public schools, you know, their mission is essentially to serve all and right. to provide a high-quality education to all students.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, you know, and this is where it gets a little complicated for charter schools because, like I said, technically they are under the same you know, rules and regulations regarding special education mm-hmm. as the public school is. But if, if they say, you know, our mission is to prepare children, prepare our students for college, and we actually have some charters uh, locally and across the state for whom that's their mission. Mm-hmm. So they, they view themselves kind of as college prep. So they can set requirements like in order for you in order for a student to graduate, he or she has to be accepted to a four year university. Mm. Well that that requirement right there, you know, kind of might just impede some students from from going there or for being successful once they are there.
0: I think it would impede a lot of students and not just special <laughs> right, education right. students either.
1: <laughs> so it's, kind of an interesting way to, um, you know, deter families who have students from with disabilities from coming to that school or from enrolling in that school. Right. And that's something that public schools simply can't do.
2: hmm
1: So, you know, in, in a way we can say, sure, they're under the same, you know, rules and regulations, but they have ways of, you know, kind of organizing themselves to, to maybe... Deter, I guess, is the best word I can think of right now. To, to get around the rules. Or, right, yeah. 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 Now, and generally speaking, private schools are not obligated to provide special education services. None at all. No, right. that's right. Um, they can and, and often do, but what they what they typically do is contract with a local public to provide those kinds of supports. So what that would mean is um, if, you, if a private school has um, enrolled... Um, children from a particular family and one of their children happens to have a disability, mm-hmm. what they would probably do is contract with a nearby school and that the teacher in that nearby school would provide the special education services or supports. That's a pretty common approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but other, other privates, you know, hire their own special education teachers or service providers, but they're, they're not under that obligation.
0: Right, and then, uh, then I imagine there's a there's probably a concern as to how much actual time the child will be getting with a special education instructor in a private school versus if they were going full time to a public school.
1: That's correct. So you kind of start to see how these the charters and and privates start to pull away um, certain families and students, and you know, my 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 fear. I'm not necessarily opposed to charter schools.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I'm opposed to bad charter schools, just <laughs> like I would be opposed to any, you know, ineffective school. Right. But the concern I have when we, when we open it up and say we can have as many charter schools as we want to is that um, what's, what ends up happening is that public schools become a place for students who are, um, you know, gener- who who, have, who come from generations of high poverty, for example. Right. You know, the most, the students who are maybe most difficult to teach, or who have the greatest instructional or social-emotional, all of those types of needs, are the ones who are going to end up remaining in public schools, while others kind of are, you know, pulled off and head off to charters and private.
0: That's right. My concern. Yeah, and I think we get what that does is it starts reinforcing the old segregation concepts. Right. Of, yeah. Of uh, yes. where you know the. Uh, The special ed kids, well, and, you know, one of the things that irritates me, and this is just a personal comment, is that when they talk about inferior, uh, you know, the inferior learners and things like that, that kind of automatically sets a standard that is absolutely untrue. And, uh, you know, they require a little extra assistance, but they can still learn at the same level. But I think, unfortunately, what happens there is they're setting up the opportunity to go back to completely segregating and removing special education from Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. mainstream schools.
1: Yeah exactly it it starts to almost feel and i know that this is you know kind of dramatic but um it, it starts to you start to worry about like the whole institutionalization thing you know wow we're really you know are we are we heading back toward toward that model really so you know, that's what it's come to um so yeah it's a it's a great
0: concern mm-hmm. right and then there is still a debate on the effectiveness of inclusion and in mainstreaming and that gets us right into this bit because uh you know some would say that, like I said, this could lead to that. And then what about, um, you know, students who need special education? And what is the research showing as far as, you know, which method works best, whether it's mainstreaming or if it's segregation? Is there any research that can uh, tell us, uh, you know, if, if mainstreaming the kids in with the normal classes, if that's been helping? Yeah, uh,
1: that's a great question. Um, and, and, you know, the, I think the interesting thing there is that the the research, on the effectiveness of inclusion um, versus more what what it has looked like is it's comparing inclusive classrooms to more of a resource model mm-hmm. a resource or even self-contained model right. and, it, and the, the results have been very mixed um, studies have shown a pretty consistent positive result for reading for example mm-hmm. so students um, with disabilities seem to fare better when we're measuring reading and reading attainment um, in inclusive classrooms.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but it's been a mixed bag for math, for example. Mm-hmm. It's been a little mixed for social and emotional skills, behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the best that we can offer as a field is to say you know, it's somewhat in, inconclusive. But there are some things that we have learned from that that I think are really important. Um, And I'll I'll just give you a couple examples. One example is that as people have looked really, really closely as what is it that, you know, what are the the variables that make for um, effective instruction or that that lead to achievement gains for students, Mm -hmm. whether they're students with disabilities or just all students in general? What are the things that really um, seem to increase student achievement? And when people have looked at these widely, you know, they've looked at hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of studies that measured achievement and, you know, categorized the things that seem to really lead to gains in student achievement. They they can divide the, these things into two categories, and they talk about proximal variables and distal variables. So what they're looking at is, is um, things that are, pretty, are fairly removed from the student, those are the distal variables. So those would be things like, you know, what kind of leadership model does the principal use? Um, or what kind of service delivery model do special education teachers use? Like is it inclusion or is it resource, resource or self-contained? So all of these decisions that are removed from the actual interaction with the student reform efforts would be an excellent example of distal variables so they're, they're kind of distance they don't really have much impact on student achievement hmm. but those proximal variables like te- like feedback from a teacher mm-hmm. or um, how we group students peer interactions around academics you know so peer tutoring or um, students collaborating together um, the the um, um, let's see, how can I say this, the kind of the, the enthusiastic or positive, positive interactions between teachers and students, mm-hmm. those types of things really move the dial on student achievement. Right. So the proximal variables make a huge difference. The other ones, not so much. So what it really comes down to is this, this great instruction makes a big difference.
0: Right obviously <laughs> now it seems it seems though social more social interaction then is is really making the difference when the right. students can be around right. what we would call typically developing kids uh it seems to bring them out of their shells and encourages them to uh to move along
1: yeah yeah absolutely offers offers some time hopefully you know positive role models or positive modeling of of good you know, good communication and and those types of things. But oftentimes it's the teacher setting those those situations up that makes the big difference, Mm -hmm. you know, creating that kind of classroom where everyone feels safe and everyone feels like they can participate and we learn about friendship skills and, you know, things like that at a young age. And, um, you know, those things
0: can make a difference. Right. So there's uh, the justification for fears about... uh the possibility of mainstreaming special needs children, taking attention away from typically developing children, and it affects the education of all the students. I know a lot of people bring that up. Is there any justification for that kind of fear, or is it, uh, is it really just people not really comfortable with the idea?
1: Um, it, yeah, I think it's more people not comfortable with the idea. Interestingly, there's actually more more studies have shown positive results
2: mm-hmm.
1: for non-disabled students. <laughs> Right. than have shown negative. Um, you know, there's, the differences are, are relatively small,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, but still there have been more positive results shown. Mm-hmm. So I would say that, you know, it, it doesn't, at worst, it doesn't um, make a difference mm-hmm. for non-disabled students. Um, at best, it is beneficial. Right it seems to be beneficial. But there's no reason to think that, it's, that there's a negative Result attached to that. No, there's there's just not the evidence for that. Right. Um, and people have looked at it. So you know, I think I do think that um, I understand that some parents might be concerned about students who have more severe behavior issues mm-hmm. in the classroom, and, and I can understand that. Um, but I do think that the law, the IDEA, has done a nice job of balancing the needs of individuals with emotional impairments with the safety of all children in the classroom. Right. So, you know, it's not as if um, as if the law is saying, you know, you, you have to have every child, we have to have every child in an inclusive classroom all the time. We recognize that there are others within the classroom. Right. Um, but just, just generally speaking, no, there aren't any negatives.
0: Right. I think it's more along the lines that the kids learn tolerance, too, you know, and they learn right, to exactly. uh, accept yep. other people, and it's not mm-hmm. as big a deal, perhaps, as it was Uh, way back when I was in school. or (laughs) Yeah,
1: absolutely. You know, and if you think about it, I would go back to also the notion that the instructional techniques, the assistive technologies that we use, Mm -hmm. instructional technologies, what's happened time and time again is so many of those things that we initially designed to use for students with disabilities end up helping a number of other students in the classroom. And so... You know, um, so once again, there's, there's just more of a benefit there, because um, I, I think about um, students have hearing impairments. You know, early on, mm-hmm. they would wear kind of a speaker or some sort of mechanism for their own hearing, and the teacher would use a microphone, and it would just go directly to that student. Right. Well, over time, the technology got more sophisticated, and now we're finding in really good, controlled studies that having that microphone... Um, helps a, a number of other students in the classroom. It helps with their intention. Right. It helps them um, clearly hear what the teacher has to say. It certainly helps the teacher with voice fatigue.
2: Mm-hmm. So,
1: you know, the, the positive benefits are far outweigh the negatives, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely, because then I've noticed, too, when I go to visit my kids' classrooms, and a lot of teachers are using them even when there aren't uh, special education kids in the classroom, just because it does uh, create a better focus of attention, like you said, and it helps the teacher. They don't have to shout over the crowd like they used to.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Yeah, I think that works better. Um, Now, people's concepts of special education can vary also depending upon their understanding of how special education was handled when they were in school. And because of that, there still can be some perceived stigmas about having a child in a special education program. What would you say to parents who worry about social stigmas and dealing with other family members uh, for their own children that might have special needs and what they can do to overcome these misconceptions?
1: Yeah, this is a tough one. Um, you know, I, I think the, the the first thing I think of is just be strong. You know, um, and and talk to other parents about how they deal with this issue, or professionals who specialize in working with families. That they're, they're always a great resource. I think oftentimes, you know, we we feel that we're kind of alone in working through this, and that there are so many other people out there who either have experienced it or are in the midst of it, who we can share information from. Mm. Um, you, you know, and I've had this topic come up. I taught in a high school, and mm. so we occasionally had students who were for the first time being identified as having a learning disability, for example. Mm. And and parents would be very concerned about that and the issue of stigma also. Right. But, um, you know, over time, we keep we keep seeing over and over again that identification is more helpful to a child in the long term than it is harmful. Right. Um, because, you know, they, there, are, um, there are rights and services and so on attached to that that mm-hmm. will help that person be successful throughout adult life. So, you know, one of the things that I think we all need to work on, and I would say educators as much or even more so as as parents and so on, is that is to keep in mind that... Um, Often the way children or, or others, you know, whether they're other family members or just other people in the community, um, whomever, so whomever they may be, the way they react to disabilities is a reflection or can become a reflection of how professionals or parents react.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so if we're accepting, if we are kind of matter of fact, and if we understand a disability to be just a normal part of the human condition, you know if we if we maintain our focus on the child as first and foremost just a child, just a kid who you know happens to have a particular condition, then others will begin to see it that way too um, and And that's certainly you know easier to say than to actually get into place right but um, you know I do think that one of the best things a a parent of a of a child with a disability can do is to be a steady strong, just well-informed advocate for their child, um, and, and helping others to see individuals with disabilities as human beings, first and foremost, is, our, is a critical initial step. Right. You know, and, and I think sometimes when, when parents are, you know, especially initially, when they're first absorbing um, the notion that, they, that their child might have a disability, and I, I'm just t- thinking about this from my own experience, too. And sometimes they would see how professionals interact with the kids about this and that we were just kind of providing information. You know, we're trying to help the, the the student understand. Here's what we mean by learning disability. Here's how it may have affected you. Here's what we're going to do to try to help. And we're being really matter-of-fact about it. And from a parent's perspective, they're thinking that it, that it seems maybe cold. Um, but what we're really trying to do is, um, it is just normalize, you know. This, this, and, and I think that's sometimes a maybe something that we as professionals need to work on. It's kind of a if you compare it to like bedside manner with a physician, you know. Right. Sometimes you want to be very kind of matter of fact and and neutral in order to help the individual better absorb. Um, you know, what's, what's happening? I don't know if I've really answered that very well.
0: No, that, that, that works good. I think uh, sometimes, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with sometimes as generations of people with ideas that aren't necessarily true, and it's, right. you know, trying to combat that and getting kids to understand and accept the fact that, you know, yeah, some kids are in wheelchairs, some kids are on crutches, some kids uh, can't always write out everything they want to write, and some kids can't always say everything they want to say, but that doesn't mean they're not learning. Right, exactly. Okay, well now let's talk about parents of young special needs children who are just old enough to start school and much of the process can be intimidating, especially when it comes to working on the individual education plan or the IEP. What kind of advice can you offer to parents who are facing the IEP process for the first time?
1: Well, the, the first thing to, to consider is that, um, that, that teachers stress about the IEP process, too. Um, and so everybody is a little, you know, maybe their anxiety is a little bit heightened by it. Because from a teacher's perspective, they, they really want to get this right. Um, and most teachers, re- they, they do, they feel the weight of the responsibility that the, that the IEP conveys. So, you know, they're coming in with a little bit of anxiety about, you know, I really want to get this right, I hope this works. And of course, the parents are coming in with a bit of anxiety because maybe they've, they've never experienced this before. There's all sorts of you know, lingo and terminology that they're not familiar with. That that professionals we forget and so don't necessarily explain very well. So I think if everyone kind of understands that, yeah, this is this is a big event and and we're all, you know, making want to make sure that this goes well. Um, that 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 can help a little bit. You know, don't. I, I think it's important for parents to understand that that they're not the only ones who are feeling like like this is a um, an anxious you know, place to be or an anxious space to be. Now, having said that, um, many teachers have, have obviously gone through the IEP process many times, and so um, I think it's important for parents to, to feel free to ask questions, to just say occasionally, you know, wait a second, this is all new to me, so can you please help me understand what this means or, you know, how, will, how does this affect my child? Um, you know, questions are helpful. They, they help remind teachers where, what parents know and may not know about the process. Um, they always end up bringing more clarity to the, to the process, too. So come ready with some questions, but then also don't be afraid to ask them as they, as they come to your mind. Um, I always found it really um, helpful when parents shared information about their children that I might not know. So that might be things as a teacher you know that I might not know, mm-hmm. so it might be um, potential or particular strengths and areas of interest that the the child has um, it might be specific areas in which the parent is really concerned you know um, and and sometimes it's funny because sometimes educators don't see the same don't see it the same way they don't some things that parents see as a um, an area that needs a lot of improvement, teachers end up saying, oh, no, actually, you'd be surprised at, you know, how well that's going. But it's, in, it's really helpful for teachers to hear from the parents' perspective, you know, kind of what's going on at home. Um, so I would say, you know, think ahead about those particular strengths, um, interests, areas or areas for improvement, and even goals that you have, whether they're short or long-term. You know, what are you hoping for from this, from the process or from being a part of special education, what are you hoping for for your child, and share that information. And I, I think it's, it's always helpful for both um, the, the teachers or whoever, whatever service providers are at the table and the parents to keep reminding ourselves that we're all there for the best interest of the child. Because sometimes there are some, you know, disagreements and, and they're based on a whole lot of different things. It could be, you know, available resources and, and so on that might cause those things. But ultimately, you know, everyone wants what's, what's best for the child. Um, and, and of course, you know, I think it's helpful to peruse some good websites ahead of time to get a sense for what might happen and, you know, what, do, what does the IEP process look like. You know, and so those, those types of things are what I would recommend.
0: Yeah. And uh, somebody else pointed out in an earlier interview on another podcast episode that the IEP, you know, it it always has to be done around uh, spring, but it can always be modified during the course of a year. Absolutely. Now, how about for parents of older children in special education, should they consider, uh, you know, what kind of expectations should they consider for their kids as far as, uh, you know, I know that the needs are different because by then the kid has been through school for a while and we have a better idea of what uh, what they're capable of and uh, what to look for. But um, is there anything um, that uh, parents should know about from a teacher's standpoint that would really help as far as uh pushing the kids on into their next years?
1: Yeah, it does get a little tricky as students get older. Um, from a teacher's perspective, I think you know, what I would say to parents is we, we still want you involved. And, and I know that that involvement can be complicated because I'm also a parent now of, you know, kids who are aging through the system, through the school system. Uh, just my, my daughter just turned 13. And so, you know, you really have to kind of be involved and be in contact with, the school or or teachers but yet also you want you're really wanting to to move your child into taking more responsibility and you know participating more in in decision making and so on right so that's kind of the balance um i as a high school teacher i uh benefited so much from maintaining contact with parents you know we had um a monthly open meeting, one night a month. I would say, okay, I'm going to be at school. Whoever wants to come can come, and we'll talk about we'll, we'll talk about the general education curriculum. We'll talk about you know we we can maybe get into some individual needs, but but mostly we'll just talk about you know what issues and demands are your children your, in this case adolescents and teenagers facing within the school, and how can I help? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was one of the most beneficial things that that I did because then, you know, we're, we're on the same page. We're kind of allies right. in this. So I would say, you know, as, as your child gets older or if you're entering into kind of the special education process with an older child, just stay involved. Um, stay in contact. But also encourage your son or daughter to, to start thinking about educational decisions and, and, and having a voice in those decisions. Right. So when you go to an IEP meeting you know, encourage your son or daughter to come with a couple goals that, that he or she would like to work on, too, mm-hmm. and share those with the students. We, My husband and I created a, a piece of software that's based off of a really good, it's called the self-advocacy strategy. Oh. And it, it helps to teach students some, some of those communication skills, but also takes them through building an inventory of their strengths and areas of interest and helps them to set goals. And the ultimate goal of that Software and of that strategy is that they'll lead their own IEP meeting. Oh, they send out invitations. They share the information. They contribute goals, um, and I, I think that's just such a great gift that you can give to students is the gift to kind of take some take some leadership over um, over those decisions. Right, and to be able to talk about their own um, strengths and. And weaknesses or I prefer areas for improvement because it mm-hmm. it doesn't sound terminal. I think weaknesses <laughs> sounds kinda terminal. Right. Um, but you know, if they can if they can talk about those to others and to adults in a way that helps people understand who they are as as learners and as people, that's just such a great gift for them for the for the rest of their lives.
0: Right. So it helps them take control of their own situation.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. That's a great independent step. Now is that software available to the public?
1: It is, yeah. It is okay. available.
0: How do so. how do we get that? I'll, I'll make sure to put a link to it on uh, on the website page.
1: Yeah, there's a uh, small business. It's in Lawrence, Kansas. Mm-hmm. It's called Edge Enterprises.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they have a website, Edge Enterprises Inc. Mm-hmm. dot I think it's a dot com.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it might be dot org though. I could, I'll look that up. Well, for we'll sure. check that and put it on. there. Yeah, you can check it. that. Yeah, mm-hmm. but the, it's called the Self Advocacy Strategy. Ah,
0: very cool. Yeah yeah well, we'll definitely put a link up to that and I know um I didn't really prep you for this, but uh what about when a kid gets into college um huh, yeah, what yeah. Cha- you know I know obviously there's less parental involvement at that point, but right. uh how much can a parent expect to be able to be involved and uh what what are the big differences there? Well,
1: a couple of big differences are um once a, a student leaves high school and, and services are no longer available to them via the high school. And some high school, some school districts certainly provide more and stay connected to kids. But um, IDEA is no longer the um, overarching, you know, legal support system that it used to be. Now students are, are protected from discrimination under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Oh, okay. So one of the big differences is that... Um, when you're in the K-12 kind of system and, and, and served under IDEA, mm-hmm. services find you. Right. And that changes dramatically because now an individual with disability has to present himself to... There's usually an office, um, for a student support office of some sort. The student has to present himself to that office with documentation of a disability uh-huh. and... Um, and then explore what those available services and supports are and how they will, you know, fit into what the, what the student needs. Oh, okay. So it, it is different in that way. And the threshold under, ADA, under the ADA is a little bit different, too, in that you have to be able to show that your disability limits um, your ability to, you know, be successful in an educational setting or a work setting or something like that. Um, so just having a disability doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get any services. You have to be able to show that that disability is, you know, impacting um, your likelihood for
0: success. Right. So it's important for the parents to save all the records, all the, perhaps all the IEPs from all the years past to be yes, able to present. Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, any, any medical diagnosis that you have or things like that as well, I imagine.
1: Right, right. And, and here's an interesting phenomenon that I, I think is really important to address. We find that a, a fair number of students with disabilities, for whatever reason, decide when they go off to college that they want to go it on their own. And so, if they don't self-identify, and then and then what will happen is they'll they'll get to the midterm and and not do well on tests or or you know there's it's. Uh, time management becomes such an issue that they get behind. Right. If they have not self-identified from the beginning, they can't get services at the midterm point.
0: Oh, geez. Or at final exam. Oh, boy. So
1: maybe at the start of the next semester we can, we'll begin again. Um, so it's, we, we really try to help students and, and secondary teachers so that they can teach their students. That there is no negative consequence for identifying yourself as having a disability in an educational setting. You don't, there's just no negative, nothing negative attached to that. It's, any, it's nothing but positive.
0: Yeah, I can imagine for the student, though, you know, the whole idea that they've gotten help throughout their entire uh, time in grade school and high school. But then suddenly you're 18, you're an adult now, I should be able to do this on my own. And there's that, but that what they, I think what everyone needs to keep in mind is they it's, they still need help.
1: Mm-hmm. It would be the equivalent of me. I started wearing glasses in third grade. I have really really poor vision.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So when I graduated from high school, I wouldn't say, yeah, I'm done with these glasses. Right. I'm just done. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go without. Um, I, you know, that's I or or if you, you know, if you're an, if you're someone who has diabetes, for example, and, yeah. You know, you, you wouldn't just at some point say, nah, I'm done with the insulin shots, I'm, right. I'm going in on my own.
0: Yeah, the insulin's been so, controlling it fine, so it means obviously I don't need it anymore.
1: Right, right, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's what we really have to help students understand. And, and you know, getting a good um, education, being successful in college, those are going to be the keys for adult success. Right. And so, you know, hang in there through college do what you need to do, and then, you know, all of, that, all of that creativity you have, all of that, you know, great spontaneous thinking that you have, those things you can apply to your careers, but you have to, you know, just like everyone else, you have to plow through those college years in order to get there. That's kind of what we hope to, the message we hope to convey to students.
0: Yeah, that's great. Now, uh, for kids who, or I'm sorry, for students who want to go into special education or have some sort of, do you find it's helpful for them to have some sort of uh, personal experience with a special needs child, either as a family member or a friend? Do you think that makes a difference versus a a student who just uh, feels drawn to it because uh, they think it's, uh, you know, an idea they want to do? Right.
1: I I do. I I do think it's, it's probably helpful um and i like the way you asked the question because i think sometimes when people um who are watching from a little bit of distance um they they tend to you know they want to be they want to be helpful they they think it it would be you know maybe it's a an altruistic kind of feeling mm-hmm. um but you know to me it's it, it's some um, you have to be somewhat relentless in in your work, right um, and so I, I think I guess it's helpful in that you're going to understand better what the day to day life of children with disabilities and their families is like right um, you know it and I, I do I think one of the benefits I, I love our our teacher preparation program for special education at Grand Valley because. We have so many field experiences built into it, even prior to student teaching, so so that by the time they're ready to enter the profession, they should have a very strong sense for not just what happens in the classroom, but some of these kind of lifespan issues that we're talking about. Right. Um, because that's that's important. I mean, it's when you I think when you're working with students who kind of are on the margins of society. Um, you, you have to understand the full picture it's not just about what happens in the classroom it's not just about getting a smile from these students that That's part of it, but the other part is making sure that they have um, the best opportunities for a really high quality life outside of school that's you know that's what we're shooting for, and that's hard work so so yeah i do I do think it's helpful, and I think it's very helpful to have that family perspective. So if you're if you're not in a family that, you know, that maybe has um either children with disabilities or or cousins or relatives, um I think spending time just understanding what what the day-to-day is like can be very helpful.
0: Right. And so going back to where you said that the biggest misconception that some people have is that you need to have a lot of patience. It sounds to me like it you need to have more of determination and dedication.
1: Yeah. I've been using the word relentless a lot lately in, in my own teaching. You know, I feel like I feel like that's the way we have to be. Both in our teaching and, and also in terms of advocacy. So yeah, I think that's that's more of you know, what we're looking for. I think that a high level of energy we've actually had superintendents when some of our um faculty we we try to spend time with local superintendents directors of special education and, and so on asking them you know what what do you want and need out of your teachers so that we're preparing them for that and they do talk a lot about obvious you know skills and techniques technical things but they also talk about high energy you know and and people who are problem solvers right who want to, who who from day one want to dig in and you know find solutions and you know, keep growing intellectually those types of things. Mm-hmm.
0: So a very driven uh a driven personality, a driven uh, yeah, goal yeah, to right. get through it.
1: No, I no I think you're right. I mean in that in that if you don't mind me sharing a personal um, anecdote.
0: No, that's great. Um
1: I would say that's exactly how I would have described those th- that word, driven is exactly how I would describe my grandmother. Ah. And her my uncle, her second son um he had cognit- what we would now call cognitive impairment, at that time mental retardation. Right. And, and she was determined, driven, to make sure that he was going to have a normal life. And at that time, and if you think about it, that's, that's quite a while ago, um, they, you know, of course doctors at the time suggested that they put him in an institution. Right. Um, or, or just keep him at home. Um, but she insisted nope he 's going to go to the same school that his brother went to. He is going to be treated exactly like you know my my dad at that point mm-hmm. was treated the same expectations and um, and I can remember he was significantly younger than my dad, so I was a small child, probably seven at the time, mm-hmm. and he was a teenager and we were she had taken me shopping and he was with us and i don 't remember what misbehavior he did, but, but she reprimanded him and, you know, told him that that was not going to happen, and, and a woman who was a friend of hers kind of reprimanded her and said something like, you know, oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't talk like that to him. He doesn't know any better, and my grandmother was livid. She said, how dare you not expect him to behave like any other kid? He is going to behave like every other child and and um and i think she got a lot of that the kind of looks or or comments but um my uncle got married he had a child he's had the same full-time job most of his adult life from which he recently retired and and when my dad called him to ask him this was over 10 years ago if he needed some help planning for retirement my uncle said something to the effect of, oh, if I needed your help, I'd ask you for it, but if you want to have dinner this week, we can do that. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So, you know, I think that's that kind of relentlessness and and having that that goal in mind for, you know, high-quality life that that should drive us in our work.
0: Right. Well, and, and, you know, your uncle benefited so much from your grandmother's determination.
1: Right, yeah. And driven yeah, there was, attitude. I'm, and I know she loved him. It's not as if she didn't love him, but she wasn't about to coddle him. Right,
0: you know? yeah. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because I saw that uh, uh, interview with uh, Temple Grandin uh, recently, uh, the person who uh, wrote a lot of books about her uh, childhood with autism, and she feels that it was because also nobody let her get away with anything. Right. You know, nobody coddled her. They all expected her to be the same as all the other kids. She got help when she needed it, but she feels that that is what really made a difference for her.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: I would agree. That's great. Um, there's a huge amount of information regarding special education, you know, and all the different methods of being used for various ways with various disabilities and challenges, not all of it is credible or even accurate. Um, are there any resource websites or books that you feel are the most accurate and proven with the research behind it when it comes to getting the correct kind of information a parent needs to make for decisions on their child's education? Um,
1: well, I am very glad that you asked this question, um, because in the role that I have now at the, at the university level, this is one of, in my mind, the biggest problem that faces our field is that there is just so much, you know, junk out there. Right. And and it's often driven by um, private industry. You know, it's it's profit driven. Oh, we'll sell the latest easy fix, and and it just serves to waste students' instructional time
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and valuable resources that that um, we don't. You know, given cuts in education, we can't waste on kind of junk. Um, So in in my, where I work, I mean, I'm fortunate that I can still tap into our library database. I can easily search very credible journals and, um, you know, peer-reviewed research so that I know what has shown actual effects for students, you know, what what kinds of approaches really make, help students learn, and what is just... um, Snake oil, basically right. being being sold. Um, so that's a real benefit for me. But the average person doesn't have that kind of access. Nor would would most people um, enjoy reading through a research article. Right. You no, know, there, there are many of those that I don't really enjoy. But
0: <laughs> but you have to. But they're
1: you know they're, they're a necessary part of my job. So right. um, so yeah, that it, it, it is a great question. So where do you go to get credible information? Um, and the the federal government is. Really working hard. There's this. Are you familiar with the What Works Clearinghouse? No. So it's it's a relatively new um, website. Uh, it's being run by a number of um, researchers, and it's I think it's through the well, it's through the Department of Education. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a website that a lot of teachers and some parents use uh, or should use to find. You know, what do we know for sure? Really works in areas such as reading, mathematics. It's very academically based, but um, but that that's a good starting point.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I'm glad that that there's a, a concerted effort at the federal level to to help get you know some kind of of clearinghouse or database where people can go. But the other otherwise, um, I regularly um, send people in my field to. Um, it's called ldonline.org. I think it's the best, um, certainly the best website for learning disabilities and for ADD, ADHD, um, and also just kind of students who are struggling to learn for various reasons. Right. They do an excellent job, and they have a component that's focused primarily on parents, on teachers, and on students, so, so, so students can go in also and get great information. Anything associated with the Council for Exceptional Children is trustworthy. You know, they work very, very hard to make sure that evidence-based practices are driving what they do. And, so, and they have divisions, you know, across every area of disability and, and parent organizations. Michigan has a strong Council for Exceptional Children. I would encourage parents to seek them out. There's also, uh, this one, the organization has changed a little bit. So the website is, you wouldn't think of these letters, but it's called the National Dissemination Center for Children with Disabilities. Wow, oh, okay. And again, they have specific, a specific part of their website is for parents, for teachers, or for researchers, so you can get pretty, you, know, you can get very customized information from them. Ah. But their website is, it's n-i-c-h-c-y dot org. Mm-hmm. It used to be called something else, but it's such a popular website that rather than change the URL, they just left it as is. Ah, okay. Um, but that's a really good, a really good place to go for good source of information.
0: Great, and we'll put up links to all those on the page uh, when we post this podcast.
1: We, what I recommend to teachers too is that you know when you encounter some information and you're thinking, "Hmm, I wonder if this is credible," scroll down and look who's responsible for this website. Right, and. You know, I don't mean to always be leery of everything that's commercialized, but I kind of am. (laughs) (laughs) You know? So I I must, it's one of those areas where I'm a little bit more trustworthy about things that are government sponsored because I know they've gone through blind review and peer review. Right. um, Whereas commercial sites don't. You know, they're, they're
0: serving different interests. Yeah, let's talk for a minute about peer review. I know uh, people hear it and they don't always understand what that means, so I think maybe if we could just get a quick explanation of how a peer review works and why it's important.
1: Yeah, it, it is very important. Um, so if, if I were to conduct a study, for example, I want to test that, that piece of software I mentioned. Right. Um, if we want to test whether or not that software works, um, we're, we did a, the study that we did. Um, we conducted a group of students used the CD to learn the self-advocacy strategy, and we pre-tested them and post-tested them um, several times. Actually, tested them throughout. Um, but then a group of students also learned the strategy from a live teacher, mm-hmm. so live instruction. And then a group of students just got some general information about the IEP process and what they can expect and I sat in on all of the IEP conferences and collected data and so we put all of that that stuff together all the things that happened the results and so on and wrote an article and sent it in to be published so that so that people could read about what happened when we used that this software
0: right and this would be other educators
1: uh, right right but before it ever got published my name was completely taken off of the document anywhere that that I might be identified was blackened out,
2: Hmm.
1: and the editors of the journal that we submitted it to looked for experts in the field of, you know, transition in special education, other people who had written about self-advocacy or self-determination, and also people who had um, used technology as a way to teach students. And they sent my article out to, you know, probably three, four, or five different people to read it to give comments, to ask questions about the methods that I used, and to make sure that what I did um, seemed credible and that they could take maybe the data that I collected and run it themselves and get the same output. Oh, okay, yep, that, that works. The math works there. Um, and then they send, they send feedback for additional information that's needed. You know, maybe I didn't describe the participants well enough or something like that. Right. So then all of that goes back to the editors who send it back to the author. We make, the, we make the changes, we send it back in the editor can decide at that point whether it needs to be reviewed one more time, or they can they might even say no we're just not going to publish this because it's not it doesn't provide enough information mm-hmm. um, or some of the methods seem a little sketchy. You need to do this study again and do you know, these types of things better right and stronger and so by the end of the process, which often takes you know, minimally six months, um, sometimes much longer. But by the end of that, the reader can be assured that people have judged the credibility of this information. Right. Um, Otherwise, it just simply won't get published. And regularly, you know, people, we have things that don't get published. Right. Because it just didn't meet that quality.
0: Right. Or the standard that's necessary.
1: Right. And when it comes to things like software and technology, this is particularly important. I don't think that people are aware that of the commercial software that's out there, Mm -hmm. probably only about 10% of that commercially available software, maybe 15% now, has ever been tested on students with disabilities. So.
0: Right. And then I I understand, too, that, you know, they they tend to the point that you made about them taking your name off the article. And the reason they do that is so that there's no favoritism shown in case somebody they contact happens to know you and they'll think, oh, well, I know her. So I I need to be nice about this.
1: Right. Exactly. (laughs) Or or, oh, this person's very prominent. So it must be good. Right. Um, No, everybody is evaluated. The same way every single time, yeah. Right,
0: exactly. so that nobody knows who you are and they come into it with a fresh perspective, you know, does this work or does it not work?
1: Right, Yep. and we never know who the reviewers are. That is that is never shared with
0: us. Yes, okay, that's even better because then it's all blind box testing, as a, as it were. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Right, that's great. And then um, I guess finally from a uh, special education teacher's standpoint, what do you th- what can parents do to make the most of their child's time in school? You know,
1: I, I thought about this a lot. There's there are so many things I can I could recommend. Um, I, I thought initially I was thinking back to some of the parents I worked with, especially parents who were learning for the first time that you know their child had some a learning disability, for example. And I and I think about how um, how difficult. It, regardless of what the, you know, the condition is that we're talking about, you know, how difficult that can be to absorb and to take in. Um, but I do think that, that being honest with kids, especially as they are growing older and, and working through school, being honest with them about um, the expectations that you have for them and, you know, how difficult some things are going to be can be really helpful. I, kids are over and over there tough and strong as, as we allow them to be. Right. So, you know, we can say, we can, you know, let them know that you're, you're just such an awesome person who happens to have this, and, and that means that some things are going to be harder for you, but that also means that at the end of the day, your character is going to be strong, you're, you know, there, some of the things that you're going to have to handle, other people will never have to work through, but, but you know, we're here for you. Your teachers are here for you. We're going to make this work together. Right. You know, I, I think that's, that can be very, very helpful for students. I always thought it was really unfortunate when kids would get to the point where they were planning their, for their college careers, and they, they had sometimes had some unrealistic expectations
2: mm-hmm.
1: because, you know, no one had said, you know, that might be really difficult given these circumstances. I think, you know, play, play to their strengths and move forward with that perspective. Um, but, but a real a practical piece of advice, um, I think it's very helpful for students um, when teachers and parents speak the same language.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I've done this with my own children, you know, you know, maybe, look, my child is having trouble with X, whatever that might be. So tell me, you know, speaking to the teacher or whoever, tell me how you, how do you talk with him or her about that? Um, you know what is what is my child hearing at school in relation to you know, whatever that might be so that we can use the same language at home. Yeah. We can make sure that now they know that we're, on, we're all on the same page. We're working together. Um, and I, I think that's just a, a practical piece of advice. That's very, very helpful for students. And, you know, I guess I also think that I, my specialty area is kind of adolescents and adolescents and young adults, uh, struggling learners. So I think it's important for kids to have something outside of school um, and outside of academics that they love and enjoy, um, just like it is for all of us. I know that sometimes when, you're, when our children are struggling, um, we want to you know, do more homework or do more um, enrichment at home to help them catch up. But at some point, even as adults, we know we all need a break from work. Right, And I think, you know, kids need to have something, children need to have something that they can, that takes their mind off of those things and, and um, brings real value and joy to their lives, too. They can be re-energized to, to get back in and focus. So, you know, I guess I would suggest that, too. And, and share those things with the teachers so that they know and they can ask the children
0: about them. Right. So basically, it's a lot of reinforcement of what goes on in the classroom. Try and bring it home and keep some realistic expectations. You know, don't get get too negative, but also don't get too overly optimistic.
1: Right, right. Yeah. Which is, you know, probably what we would say to any parent. Right. Asking these types of questions. Um, But, you know, it's It it, it at least feels a lot more complicated when there are these special needs that we're considering.
0: My thanks again to Paula Lancaster, Professor of Special Education and the Chair of the Special Education, Foundations, and Technology Department at Grand Valley State University in West Michigan, for taking the time to help us understand more about the world of special education instruction. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.